Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Now, I have to say, before I introduce our first guest, I am absolutely ecstatic for this interview. In fact, when I heard that we booked him to come on the show, I did a ridiculous and probably very childish happy dance, and I'm thankful that nobody was around to see it. But don't pretend for a second like you don't have one of those ridiculous happy dances that you do when you're really excited about something uh, that you're really excited about. I know that's kind of redundant, but you know your happy dance. Just picture yourself doing it, or you can picture me doing the happy dance. So joining me today is Mr. Jerry Buting. Now, Jerry Buting is the managing attorney and president of Buting, Williams, and Stillings. He is a criminal defense lawyer that practices, uh, his practice focused primarily on defense of serious and complex criminal offenses, both state and federal uh, trial and appeal. Defensive liberty and constitutional rights in all cases, including homicides, sexual assaults, vehicular homicides, drug offenses, white collar crimes, wrongful convictions, and expertise in DNA and other forensic sciences. Now, you might be thinking, why in the heck is Connor so excited about having this Jerry Buting guy on? Well, you may not remember his name. Uh, maybe some of you do. Uh, hopefully you do. But Jerry was the lead lawyer, lead defense lawyer for Stephen Avery. And Stephen Avery was from the Netflix, the huge, huge uh, premiere and and hit docu-series that was on Netflix called Making a Murderer. Uh, so <laughs> I was I was really excited because this was a very little bit of a little bit of a different departure from our, our normal interviews. But we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in this interview. We're going to talk about the the actual documentary series, Making a Murderer. Uh, Jerry's going to share sort of his personal journey in the beginning uh, around why he became a lawyer. Then we're going to talk about the actual documentary series itself. We're going to talk about Making a Murderer. Uh, he's going to share some insight on uh, on Stephen Avery and and you know some of his own personal opinions around it. Uh, he's going to pull back the curtain around some of the pieces of the case, why the trial went the way that it went in his opinion. And then we're going to talk about what he calls the illusions of justice. And this is kind of sprinkled throughout the interview. And it's really incredible because Jerry has a, a very unique perspective on some of the challenges that people face when they are accused of a crime. And so he's wrote a, a book recently called Illusions of Justice. And uh, we don't talk about the book too, too much, to be honest with you. Um, it's an incredible book. I've actually started reading it because um, I grabbed a copy and uh, it, it really is an incredible book so far, but we don't really talk about it too much. We more talk about some of the illusions, some of the challenges that people face when they are actually charged with a crime, because most people think, well, it's, it's clear cut. If you're, if you're charged for a crime, then you're probably guilty of it. But as we've seen in, in you know, other podcasts like Serial or in shows like Making a Murderer, sometimes that's actually not so clear. And so Jerry actually, you know, sort of sheds light and illuminates on how easy it is to be misconvicted, to be to be wrongfully accused, to be wrongfully convicted of a crime. Uh, so really, really interesting stuff. We talk about DNA. We talk about a whole bunch of different stuff. So uh, before I bring Jerry on for the show, I just want to remind all of you, please head on over to whatever platform you're li listening to us on uh, and leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way. And if you love this episode or you know somebody who loves making a murderer or really enjoyed the show or love the drama of it, definitely send them this podcast episode. Uh, share it with them because it goes a long way to uh, helping to spread the spread the good word. Uh, plus, you're going to make somebody's day because you've just given them uh, a chance to geek out with Mr. Jerry Buting. So without any further ado or without any further delay, please welcome Jerry Buting. Well, it's great to be here. Wonderful. So I'm going to start off today like I always start off all the podcasts and uh, dive straight in with the question of tell us a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today. Okay, I can go way back to when I was a teenager, and um, my thankfully one and only arrest, I was at a, uh, it was like a pinball joint, you know, an arcade, and the police raided it. I was 16 years old. The police raided it thinking that they were going to find all these drugs, and they didn't. They didn't get anything. 
And, and so, so to, to make it worthwhile, they decided to arrest me and one other person who was underage, under the curfew. It was like 11.15, you know. And I was uh, 16 years old, so I was under underage. And, uh, you know, I, I, they put me in the, the paddy wagon, and I sit around until they loaded up with everybody else that they were arresting in the area. We drive all over town. I end up down in the bullpen, sitting, you know, side to side on these metal benches um, with probably 20, 25 other people, everybody from heroin addicts who were you know, going through detox and to me, you know. And I'm sure when my father got the call and heard it was just a curfew violation, it was a great relief to him. <laughs> but, it, you know, when I, it gave me a chance to see how the police treat people, even for something as simple as, as that. And I, I had already sort of had a, 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 a I guess you'd call it a, um, a leaning towards the individual and the underdog. Perry Mason was one of my favorite television shows. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then after having experienced that, that really kind of helped push me into a real interest in being a criminal defense attorney. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's, I never would have guessed it. I always, I think people outside of law have this sort of perspective that if you're a police officer or a lawyer, that you have this sort of like flawless, untarnished record and, you know, you, you grew up in this sort of perfect and pristine environment and never, never sort of faced the, the realities of teenage years. And uh, right. I love that that happened in a, in a pinball arcade. I think that's, yep, yep. that's, that's priceless. That's priceless. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about, about what drew you to law. And it sounds like that, that moment in time was uh, specifically impactful for you. But what were some of the pieces you mentioned the underdog and wanting to represent them? And tell me a little bit more about that. Cause I think I, I see myself in that. And I think a lot of our listeners would as well, um, sure. being the, you know, the, the comic book uh, yes. generation, you know, growing right. up on the Superman and the Batman and stuff like that. So, right. So, you know, I grew up in the sixties and seventies and there was, um, you know, a, a political movement um, among young people in particular that was resisting authority that was trying to change the world. And I really felt like I could identify with the underdog and wanted to support them. I knew that I had some good verbal skills that I could help be their mouthpiece. Um, and of course, I was idealistic and thought I could change the world, right? And my father was an attorney, but a, a patent lawyer, so very different. And But I, I learned a little bit about the law through him. And I guess I, when I went into college, I explored... Actually, when I started college, I also had an interest in science. And I started off as a freshman as an astronomy major, hmm. which uh, very, very different than what I ended up in. And within the first couple of weeks, I could see that it, that this was not a career for me because it was back then it was you'd be alone on a mountaintop all night long. And I'd try and engage with some of my classmates and they were socially inept, basically. <laughs> and I realized, yeah. Uh, you know, this idea. isn't really, I'll make this a hobby. This right. isn't going to be a career. So then I, I, I went into forensic studies and criminal justice and I uh, got my undergraduate degree and then immediately wanted to be criminal defense attorney and went right to law school. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So it sounds like it, it, it sort of shaped the reason why you went in the direction that you did. Um, what about when you got to law school? Why did you choose a certain path that you chose? Well, you know, there's there's all kinds of different fields of law, everything from, you know, trusts and estates to corporate law. And criminal defense has always been sort of uh, as a status uh, level in the, in the law at the bottom of the totem pole, mm. not respected the same way as, you know, uh, silk stocking law firms and that sort of thing. And yet uh, it's one of the few areas of the law where you really have it, real people individuals that you represent. And you do that, you, you get that in family law and a few others, but um, I was really drawn to being able to to get to know my clients one-on-one, not, not representing Ford or, you know, GM or some big corporation. I was really interested in having individual clients with individual problems. Um, and so I, criminal defense was, was it. It was my, um, my interest and I, I took every course that I could, including clinical education and law school, which is where you actually work in a clinic as a supervised by 
other attorneys, you can do a little bit of actual courtroom work where you represent real clients. And that mode of education was relatively new back then. It's much more common now. Uh, but I, I got lucky and had a, um, I mean, most of my classmates would just have a, I don't know, a shoplifting or something, you know, local. But I, I had a client who was uh, like a, I don't know if it'd be forgery, but he was kiting checks in like four or five different counties. Hmm. And so I got to represent him in four or five different counties. And so I got an experience with a broader, because every every courtroom, every county has its own culture and is a little bit different. And it gave me a sense of what it might be like to be a public defender. Very cool. Very, very cool. I like how that your sort of story is shaping uh, the direction that you go. in. And so, okay, so you graduate, uh, you start doing criminal defense. And uh, what was sort of one of the biggest cases that you had handled before Stephen came along? Well, I handled quite a bit by then because by the time I was um, representing Stephen, I had been in private practice for a while. So I was I started off as a public defender for my first almost nine years. And I had a number of big cases, one which involved a challenge to breath testing devices that were in vogue at the time that really had no electronic shielding, and so they were susceptible to radio frequency interference. And you could see that, you know, officers with their walkie-talkies would be nearby when someone is blowing into the machine, the needle would just move way beyond what it was. And and, and so, you know, you, I'd had clients that say, there's no way, I wasn't that drunk, that, there's, I only had two beers, or... Um, but you never know. And then one guy was so adamant, I decided to really look into it and and discovered that there was... Uh, the manufacturer knew about this defect with the machine, but did not do a recall. Huh. But there were there were some materials on it and some suggestions of how people could modify it. Uh, but none of the police departments were. And so I, I filed this big motion challenging it. It ended up, I had one case, but I ended up uh, stalling like 900 cases in the court system. <laughs> Wow. All of almost all of which ended up getting dismissed because I was able to prove that there were these real problems. I, I found an expert. I needed an expert on radio frequency interference, electromagnetic interference. And I found a former Nazi scientist in the city of Milwaukee who had been captured by the Americans at, right at the end of the war. And uh, there was this big tussle between the, the Russians and the Americans for some of these brilliant German mines, and one of which was Werner von Braun, who became the head of NASA. Um, and the Russians got a lot of them as well. But we had this one guy who was world famous at the time. And the, the government worked out a deal where you would, you would work for five years for the Navy or whatever it might be. And then he was allowed to live as an American citizen. I called him up and I, I sent him the materials on this. And he said, this is too simple for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's he speaks all over the world. He worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is huge, enormous magnets that you know, they have to shield. And I said, yes, uh, Dr. Schlicka, yes, I know this is simple, but people are going to jail because of this. That's ridiculous. I can't be. And I said, yes, they are. And so finally he agreed to come, testified in court. Uh, it was just amazing. People loved him and ended up having a big, making a big change in the uh, the, the whole practice in the state of Wisconsin, they had to throw out all those machines to get new ones. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, first off, you're a great storyteller. I was, I was very captivated by that. I, I love that story. Uh, I'm curious about, before we move forward, I'm curious about how experts actually play into court cases because they seem to either be some, some role that is a make or break for a court case or a big point of contention oftentimes as to whether or not whether or not experts are valid. Like I, I think another, another example of this is in the, uh, the podcast came out serial. I don't know if you sure. listen yes. to that. And, 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 you know, in there, they talk about experts that they've brought in uh, for the trial that are, you know, experts in cell phone records at the time, which is in the late nineties. Right. Um, so it was a very loose right. terminology around being an expert in something that had just come out. So maybe just unpack for the listeners the relevance of an expert, the role that they can play, and, and why they're actually important. Sure. Uh, experts really are have become more, much more important during the course of my career than they were even when I first started, um, in part because 
science and technology has become so much more a part of our lives. Expert witnesses are, are intended to be uh, useful to a court judge or jury in explaining information that they wouldn't otherwise know, that the ordinary lay person wouldn't know. And so if they're qualified as experts because of their training or experience, background, whatever it might be, then they can testify and give opinions based upon science. Now, unfortunately, a lot of what's come in in criminal cases is junk science. And, you know, types of expertise and forensics science in, in quotations, because a lot of it's never been validated. It's never been tested. It, and it's later now been some of it proven wrong. So um, in, as one example, until DNA came out, uh, there were many people who were convicted and in prison, in part based on faulty forensic science. Mm. And, you know, hair comparison or uh, bite mark evidence or things like that that these experts would come into court, tell the jury, yes, this is similar, or this is a match, and, you know, this, this hair at the crime scene matches the suspect's sample hair, and, and jurors would convict. It sounds, you know, jurors are kind of awed by science and experts. Um, and then DNA would come out and, and disprove that, prove them innocent, despite what these experts had said. And it, it, it really called into question a lot of what people believed uh, to be true when it came to forensics sciences. Um, now, civil cases have used experts, you know, for decades. Um, experts on soft tissue issue uh, injuries, if there's an automobile accident, whiplash, or something. And there's been critici- criticism of that because they sometimes end up as battles of experts. Mm. And one side, you know, if you're equally well funded, you'll have your experts against their experts. And sometimes, you know, one expert works only for the plaintiff and the other expert works only for the defense. And what I've always tried to do when I use an expert in a criminal case is find somebody who is not typically a defense expert. I like somebody who works mostly for the prosecution or maybe exclusively for the prosecution. And then I see if if they can look at my case and, and if they become convinced that my client's position is correct scientifically, then I think they're more credible. I think jurors will accept them more. They're not just a paid expert by the defense. Mm. Um, So nowadays, of course, you know, technology is even intersecting with right to privacy. And there's a lot of concerns about that. Uh, Everything from your Alexa, (laughs) you know, that's going to be able to uh, there was a, couple, a case a couple of years ago where the police subpoenaed all of the records from somebody's Alexa to try and you know, determine where he was going and what he was saying, what he was researching in the 48 hours or so before this murder. Um, Amazon fought it, and ultimately it, the case resolved, so the, the legal question never quite got got um, decided. But people have to wonder, you know, there's your... Google Maps or, you know, all your phone apps can trace you. All of your, every place you have been and every website you've searched and with a fair degree of certainty. And, uh, you know, experts will use that. Experts will interpret things on your phone, on your computer. And it's become a much more complicated process now to try and defend these cases or prosecute them. Mm. Uh, People watch television shows like CSI or, you know, and they think that there's a, there's a science that is going to solve conclusively guilt or innocence in every case, which certainly isn't the case. Um, A lot of what you see on on television is fiction, of course. And, um, but beyond what you see in, on television or in the movies, People know about technology. They use technology more. And so they expect whichever side it is, whether it's the prosecution or the defense, to present whatever kind of evidence there might be from that. And if you don't present it, then, you know, they may be left questioning, why not? Are you hiding something? If it's the defense, perhaps, you know, do you do you know something that you could prove as innocence when you uh, haven't? Which, of course turns on upside down the whole idea of the burden of proof and the presumption of innocence. But oftentimes the prosecution is like, well, maybe there's reasonable doubt. 
because they didn't present this expert mm. or this piece of science. So it's um, become more important. It's, it's more difficult and more expensive for both sides to be able to defend serious cases because you have to be, I mean, most lawyers are not that interested in science. Many of them went into law because they hate math or they hate science. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not like that. And I've always way to been, escape and yeah. being, becoming an engineer. Sure. Um, and scientists and engineers think differently. You know, they're trained to think in a certain way, problem solving. And, and uh, uh, so in order to be able to, to defend somebody in a criminal case, you have to become a sort of a mini expert and teach yourself um, all about a forensic discipline in a way that allows you to either present your own expert or cross-examine their expert. And to me, that's always been uh, an interesting challenge that I enjoy. Interesting. So I would love to I would love to pause on this idea of, of junk science, because I think the, the everyday person, their perspective of what happens in the court of law is really off of shows like, uh, you know, NCIS and CSI. And now we're starting to get a little bit more of a glimpse based on, you know, shows that are coming up on Netflix, like, you know, the, the docuseries that you're a part of. And so we're now starting to get a little bit of a better glimpse or behind the scenes, but how do you, uh, as a criminal defense lawyer, differentiate between junk science that that could be used in the court of law to sort of shape a narrative versus science that is actually in some ways irrefutable, in, in some ways could actually be proved and used to show your show your case? Well, first first of all, there's rarely, in my experience. Uh, scientific evidence that's irrefutable mm. of either guilt or innocence. Um, DNA is the closest you come to that. Uh, but even DNA now has become less powerful than it used to be. Mm. Why? Because, let's just take DNA for a second. Um, DNA tests used to require large amounts of biological material left behind, whether it's blood or semen or, or saliva, something of that nature. And particularly if it's something like semen at a crime scene, a, a rape or a murder, that's not something that is just sort of casually deposited in the environment. You know, you're, it's pretty probative if, if they find a defendant's DNA and semen on the victim's body. That mm -hmm. was very powerful evidence of guilt. Um, but these tests now are so sensitive that they can pick up a full DNA profile with just a few cells. And so... We now have the problem where uh, of innocent transfer of DNA that has been proven over and over where I can shake your hand, you go off, rob a bank, leave the gun behind, and my DNA is found on a gun that I never touched. It's also become a problem with um, in sexual assault cases, intrafamilial kind of relationships. Um, <clears throat> a study just a couple of years ago in Canada found that Fathers who are clearly not sexually assaulting their daughters, um, when they would wash bed sheets that the father and mother would sleep in and have engaged in sexual relations, when they would wash them with completely clean uh, panties, they would find the, the father's DNA on the panties after being washed and sometimes even find sperm on the panties. Um, why? Because they had migrated and been transferred in the washing machine. Wow. And it's a scary thing to think about. Um, what do you do? You got to like, <laughs> now you got to have his and her washers or, um, but it's, it's because the tests are so sensitive now that they can pick up in, uh, DNA that may not at all be probative of guilt or innocence. It may not prove that the, the father was assaulting the the daughter, or that the person was even at the crime scene, and yet the DNA is there. There was another case uh, in California where a homeless man was charged with the murder of a home invasion of a wealthy individual who's, who's then murdered, and they found the homeless guy's DNA under the fingernails or in uh, fingernail scrapings of the victim. And only because of luck was he later. Uh, his case dismissed before he actually went to trial when they found out that he was innocent because that same day 
earlier that evening, he had been um, taken to the hospital, picked up by paramedics. He was extremely intoxicated. And the same paramedics that took him to the hospital where he had an alibi because he was in the hospital during the time of the murder were also called to the murder scene. And they transferred his, they think maybe by those little finger um, clips that they put on. Right, right. For, um, the, for the pulse. For the pulse. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's, there's an example of, uh, you know, finding someone's DNA on a murder uh, victim was not pr- probative of his guilt at all. Right. And so, you know, so that's that's just DNA. When you get to other kinds of science, uh, forensic science, or a lot of it really is not validated. The National Academy of Science did a whole study of all of the various fields of forensic science um, in 2009, and they found huge flaws with the vast majority of them, uh, DNA being the only one that was really that objective and had been validated. A lot of these things that are used in court have never been scientifically validated. And they're not done with double-blind testing to eliminate the possibility of what we call uh, tunnel vision or confirmatory bias, mm-hmm. uh, where experts, if they think, you know, if they know they're working on a suspect's sample of something, they may be more inclined to, to come to a result than if, they're just, if it's blind, they don't know who's the suspect, they don't know who's the alleged victim in the case or whatever. Mm. Um, so there's, they recommended a lot of improvements that be made. There was some efforts to do so until very recently. There was a sort of a bipartisan National Forensic Science Commission that was studying ways to validate these tests better and, and become more objective science in the courtroom. And then uh, Attorney General Sessions disbanded it. Mm. Um, so it, it's kind of on pause right now. And uh, whenever I get a case that has fingerprints or bite mark or arson or hair comparison, you, ha- you have to start with the presumption that it is probably flawed and go from there and see if you can determine what, where, what the flaw is or not. So it's so interesting because as you are describing some of this, it, it I mean, First and foremost, it sets up what we're going to talk about in in the case that you were on. But it also just shows how how unclear some of this actually is. You know, I think from a public perspective, it often seems very cut and dry. It's like, oh, there's DNA. It's cut and dry. It's very clear. And and that sounds like that's not the case at all. And and that it can be very, uh, very confusing and sort of paint a very different picture, which is interesting. So so let's let's shift gears here and and, and move towards the the case. Sure. The, the sort of the sort of famous the famous case. So so you were a part of the the Netflix uh, docu series around um, making a murderer with uh, with Stephen Avery. Yes. And um, I remember watching it, and it, it was interesting because when when we got in touch with your team to to actually have you on the show. Um, I wasn't really too sure what direction I wanted to even take this conversation because I feel like there's so many different veins right. that, and I'm sure that so many people have you on the show just to talk about the case. But I really wanted to set up the sort of background from a legal standpoint. And that's why we talked about evidence and, and whatnot because it's it seems very cut and dry from an external perspective, but it, it often is not what you see. So tell me how the, the case sort of came about. Is it something that, that you sought out or is it something that, that sought you out? Well, the case was, uh, was referred to me um, by some other attorneys that, that knew my expertise and my colleague Dean Strang's uh, expertise. And Dean was actually um, hired on the case about a week or two before I was. And then he called me to see if I would join him. We had worked on some cases before none that ever went all the way to trial. We'd never been in the same law office together. But I was very familiar with the case because it was had huge publicity and it had been pending for about four months by the time I got on got involved. Now, the documentary was an interesting issue we had to face almost immediately. Uh, would we participate in the documentary or not? We didn't have to just because we were representing Stephen. Um, and we knew that they had they had offered the same access um, to the to the prosecution and the police. <clears throat> and in fact, I thought at one point that they were uh, participating. But we decided that 
not having no idea that it would really have this effect and that it would have this kind of public education effect. We thought that it would be an interesting opportunity for the general public, whoever might watch the documentary, to get a feel of what it's like to be a criminal defense attorney preparing for a serious case, brainstorming. So, so we allowed brainstorming sessions and, and behind the scenes um, meetings. Um, and the, the only requirement that we had was that they not violate attorney-client privilege. So there's, there's no, op- no scenes where we are speaking with our client, Stephen, mm-hmm. And that it would, this was kind of funny, but we, we didn't want anything to air until after both trials had completed. You know, it ended up being nine years. <laughs> I had no idea how long it takes. But that was important to us because we did not want there to be continued pre-trial publicity um, beyond what had already happened, which was, was a lot, a lot was and, a and yeah. all negative. Um, and we knew we'd have no editorial control, so we didn't know how it would be spun eventually. But that's how we got involved in the case. And in fact, the very day that I got involved was the day that they, they did the interrogation of Brendan Dassey and then did this press conference, you know, that poisoned the entire jury pool, in my estimation, throughout the whole state of Wisconsin. So we were really, you know, had the deck stacked against us before we ever got on the case. But um, it's the kind of challenge that that both of us were up for, that, that any good lawyer should want to do, um, no matter what the odds might be. Um, it's a professional challenge to try and um, help because it was obviously, this was a man who desperately needed help. He was outgunned um, by law enforcement and prosecution and uh, really needed somebody in his corner. Mm. I mean, the, the thing that stood out to me the most is like here you have a guy who had, had just spent 18 years in, in prison for something that he had then been acquitted of or for being wrong, wrongfully accused of, of sexual assault and rape and, and, and is seeking out, I think it was a, like a $36 million settlement from the county of... Right. Uh, Sorry, I'm, I'm Manitowoc. Manitowoc. Manitowoc, right. <laughs> I wanted to say Manitoba because I'm Canadian, but okay. I know that's not right. Um, so Manitowoc. So so he, he's seeking this out and and you know all of a sudden this scenario, the situation happens and obviously doesn't look good. Um, when you enter into the case, so you had mentioned Brendan Dassey and, and his uh, his interview that had just kind of gone on. Tell me about the, the sort of storm that you're entering into as a criminal defense lawyer. So here you have a client who's already been painted in the public eye as, mm-hmm. as somebody that's devious and, and untrustworthy. A sort of case had been made for him. And, and now an interview has been, been had and, and some pretty, what seems to be some pretty substantial evidence against him uh, come forward. And now you enter into the scene. Right. Um, how do you even... How do you even begin with that? Like, where do you even start? Well, first, right before that, there were some other interesting developments. So the case had been pending for about four months. And when he was first charged, it was, you know, he's obviously guilty. The, the, the RAV4 is found on his family's property. Find her cremains in, outside of his garage and, and all the evidence uh, key in, her, in his bedroom. All of that appeared to be very powerful and incriminating evidence and the public was misled and told that the people he was suing for $36 million, the investigators from Manitowoc County, had, had um, disengaged from the case and turned over the authority to a neighboring county and were not involved. And then a couple of months after that is when the, it came out in court that they, they were, in fact, involved and that they had found this key under very suspicious circumstances in plain view on the floor of his bedroom um, on, I think it was the sixth or seventh time they entered his residence, no one ever finding it before that. And, you know, that sort of started to change some of the public's view towards him. There was, "Ah, wait a minute, maybe this isn't so clear cut. Um, And there was a little bit more skepticism, I think until the day I got on the case when Brendan Dassey confession was publicized. <clears throat> then suddenly they had some corroborating proof, they thought, 
Um, the public was told this horrible story about this brutal rape, murder, uh, destruction of her corpse and, and all that. And it was a very gripping story that was chilling. And it was broadcast live all over the state. And so we get on the case. And um, uh, I got on the case the day before, March 1st. The very next day was the, the big press conference that was live and begun by the special prosecutor saying, now, if anyone's under the age of 15, you know, you might want to leave the room, which, of course, makes everybody turn the volume up. This is going to be good, right? <laughs> right. This is a juicy story. Uh, and it was a very chilling story. And it was the best closing argument that uh, Kim Kratz ever did in the case because he could make up facts. Uh, at the trial, he didn't have any of those facts. We didn't know the facts at that point. We thought, you know, we hadn't seen any of the discovery. We didn't know anything about the case other than what was publicly known. But even when I heard the story, as chilling as it was, and maybe it's because I'm a criminal defense attorney, I was skeptical because it just seemed like overkill. Mm. The, de the description of what this kid supposedly said happened. You know, there's this stabbing in the stomach. There's slitting her throat. She's still talking, by the way, after that. Then they strangle her after her throat has been slit, which would be a very bloody, bizarre kind of thing to do. And then they start, you know, then she's being punched in the head, in the face. And then they t shoot her. They shoot her 11 times. It's just like, what do you have to do? Right. Um, and so I was a little bit skeptical, but it, but it was only about a month later when we finally got the, the crime lab reports. And we realized, wait a second, there was no blood anywhere in that bedroom. Um, and they looked at the mattress, the bedding, they ripped the paneling off the walls, they ripped up the carpet, they didn't find as, uh, any of her hair that was supposedly cut off. I mean, this was a bloody murder and rape. And there would have been clearly forensic evidence, and they found none. They found no DNA of Teresa Halbach in that house. And so then it was like, aha, this story can't be true. And then shortly after that is when we actually finally, finally got access to the actual videotapes of the interrogation. And we were very familiar with what kinds of techniques police use. And so it was no surprise for us as we went through the videotapes to, to see what happened and how this story came out and how the facts were fed to him by the police and these promises that were made. So we then, you know, became more optimistic. It's like, hey, you know, this is, I can't believe they would go to this extent to get Stephen Avery uh, to take this poor, soft, mentally challenged, limited 16-year-old boy and uh, coerce him into giving this false confession so that they could uh, get more evidence to convict Stephen Avery. To, to us, that, was, that seemed like further proof of the, the links they would go. Mm -hmm. And it made it much more likely that they were fabricating the whole case mm -hmm. against Stephen. And, but the public didn't know any of that. And we went to trial months later after the, you know, with the public not knowing any of that and not knowing whether they would use Brendan Dassey's confession during our case. And probably the tactically savviest thing the prosecution did was to not use Brendan Dassey in our case. It really tied our hands. We were not able to call him as a witness. He had a Fifth Amendment right not to testify. He was still, you know, awaiting his own trial. So we could not have forced him to testify. And without doing that, we couldn't get, present any of the facts that we knew now had about how his confession had been coerced, the tricks that had been used, the lies, the promises, all of the things that they used that our jury never heard. And interestingly, a month later, when Brendan's case went to trial, his jury never heard most of it because the prosecution objected to any of the interrogations that, that happened the day before and the day before that, in which they made all of these promises to Brendan that we'll go to bat for you and, you know, things like, uh, Brendan, yeah, we're investigators and all that, but right now I'm a father with a 16-year-old just like you, and I know you're hurting, and I want to come over and hug you and, you know, let you uh, tell us what happened and, 
you can make it look however you want because we know it wasn't your fault. It was the uncle, etc., etc. We'll go to bat for you. Mm. We won't leave you high and dry. And we, and then also the implications that they had all this evidence they never did. Brendan's jury never heard any of that uh, because the prosecution prevented it. And then Brendan's jury never heard on the one uh, day of an interrogation that they did show at trial. His attorneys agreed to stop it before the very end when his mother comes in and, and he's immediately recanting. The first time he's encountering somebody who loves him that, that he can feel comfortable with, uh, he's like, well, they got to my head. Mm. Brendan's jury never heard any of that either. So, you know, coming into it when we did with all that evidence initially was very challenging. Trying to counter the pretrial publicity was difficult. But we thought, and I still think, that we had good evidence of reasonable doubt as to both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey's guilt. And unfortunately, some of, a lot of it was not allowed to be presented to either jury. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing, I mean, there's, there's so many fascinating things about this case that, you know, even when I watch the show or I hear you retell it, um, they the, really stand out to me. I think the biggest one, well, the, the biggest few of them are really the fact that the Manitowoc County sheriffs were so heavily involved after they had said that the uh, the case had been handed off to a different county. Right, they right. were involved in it. And then, you know, as an outsider, you see that most of the evidence, most of the substantial evidence that points at Stephen Avery has been actually acquired by the Manitowoc County. Right. Who's not supposed to be involved. Right. right. <laughs> so from the outside, it's like, well, how is that? How is that happening? Why is that <clears throat> happening? And, and, and where does that point? So, at, you know, as a defense lawyer, how... Do you handle that information? Is there something that you can even do with it in that case, or are you restricted in certain ways? Well, a lot of people asked after the documentary, how was that even admissible? How could they even have used it? And unfortunately, under most American states' laws, that kind of a, a violation or conflict of interest doesn't mean the case gets dismissed, doesn't mean that the evidence can't be used. Instead, <clears throat> what they say is it goes to the weight of the evidence and that the defense can um, show the conflict to the jury and that you can challenge it as not being fair and, and that it's biased, but that it's up to the jury to decide. Well, of course, if the jury is, is um, already infected with all kinds of pretrial negative publicity, um, it's difficult when, when they, in essence, shift the burden of proof to the defense to you know, prove uh, someone's innocence, when all you can do is, is try and point out to them, yeah, but this evidence was all tainted. You know, it could have been fabricated. It could have been planted. It could have been this. It could have been that. And you can do that. And we were able to do that with the jury. But it just wasn't enough to overcome, I think, some of the other problems we had in um, getting a fair and impartial juror to, to look at that kind of evidence. How, how much, when it comes to the jury, how much does confirmation bias play into this? Because I imagine just the scenario that you walked into, as you said, most people in the county had already heard of this story. Stephen had been painted in a very specific way by the prosecution. And so you're already entering into having people that have um, some perspective mm -hmm. of the character of your client. So <laughs> how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you face that? How do you start to overcome that? And, and is that part of the strategy that you then have to create in your case to, to overcome that? You know, it's a difficulty in every case, but especially in high publicity cases. And some people think that it's, it's impossible. And especially with the advent of social media and the misinformation that can be um, spread around, um, um, but, uh, and some have advocated then we should get rid of jury trials, that jurors are too easily polluted and biased before they ever come into court. And I, I don't go that far. I, I think that you can still get a fair trial, um, but it is incumbent upon the judge to do a much better job than most of the times they do, ferreting out those, those jurors who not only maybe have prior knowledge about the case, but have um, biases as a result of that prior knowledge. And they can't set it aside. When instead, 
what usually happens is if, if a juror during jury selection admits, yeah, I've heard a lot about this case and I think I'd really have a hard time being fair and impartial. In my opinion, he's probably guilty. You, know, you, you hear these kinds of things. <clears throat> you'd think, okay, well, the judge should just strike that person and allow them to go home when instead the judge turns and says, well, uh, Mr. Smith, you understand that, I, that I'm going to instruct you that you're to set aside all that preconceptions that you have and that you're to decide this case only upon the evidence presented in court. You can follow my instructions, can't you? And sometimes they'll say, well, I'll try, and, but I don't really know. And then they start getting browbeaten by the court into... Well, sure, of course I can do that. Yeah, you know, because they don't want to appear biased um, to the, all these other strangers in the room. Um, when instead of encouraging people to be fair and open about their their preconceived notions, um, it's just the opposite. And so judges really, I think, are at fault uh, all over the country in, in cases like this. And they really need to make a better effort to try and separate those people. In our case... It was very difficult because you do have the opportunity to try and move for change of venue, uh, where they would bring in a jury from a different county. The problem, though, in our case, we thought was that the the, the misinformation had had been spread so far and wide all over the state, all seven major media markets, that we didn't think we could really get a fair jury anywhere. And one of our big concerns was that we didn't want Manitowoc County. Uh, bailiffs, deputies, ushering jurors back and forth and supervising them all day long, as that would have happened if it, if the case was tried in that county. Um, so we ended up doing sort of a compromise where the case was tried in the neighboring county, but with Manitowoc County jurors. Mm. So they were supervised by uh, bailiffs, and actually they were retired bailiffs that had no contact or you know direct relationship to to the um, suspected malfeasors in Manitowoc County. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it's difficult. And, you know, you, I think I said it in the documentary, you know, after a month of the trial, it was like things were going, going well and we thought we really had a, a good case for reasonable doubt, yeah. um, but that it could have all been for naught because of the jury we ended up with um, from the very beginning. And that's, that's a problem that you'll hear from defense attorneys all along. Sometimes you, you feel like the case is lost before you've ever started. Hmm. Just, uh, you don't get to pick the jury you want when you're going through that jury selection, you pick who you don't want. Hmm. And you can try and get rid of the worst of, uh, the jurors who, who appear to be biased, but you're left with whoever's left. And in our case, you know, we were still left with some people who were pretty, unfavorable to yeah. the defense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I feel like I could unpack this case with you for hours yeah. and, and really, and I'm sure that that's a sentiment that's shared by, by most people that get the chance to interview you. But one of the, one of the last questions, um, because I do want to chat about your book uh, a little bit and some of the speaking that you've been doing recently. One of the last questions I had is, is, you know, around the, the character of Stephen and, and how you as a criminal defense lawyer entered into not having that same uh, bias, you know, because I can imagine that seeing all the publicity beforehand and, you know, starting to become familiar with the case, I put myself in your shoes and, and I, and I struggle to see how uh, I don't lean to one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, I guess my, my question is really twofold. One you know, outside of the cameras that we saw in in Making a Murderer on the Netflix documentary, what's he actually like? And and then two, how did you deal with that that initial coming into the case and meeting him for the first few times and seeing the evidence after having heard everything that you heard in the media? Well, I think you know he's he's pretty much what you saw or heard in. Um in all those phone conversations in making a murderer, you know, he was bewildered at at how all of this stuff could be coming up against him again and how they were finding this evidence when there shouldn't have been the evidence. And, um, you know, he's a, he's, he had spent 18 years in prison. He's a concrete thinker, um, not well-educated, um, some, you know, education on the, you know, a little bit of street 
smarts from the, you learn in prison. But otherwise, um, he's pretty much what you saw on Making a Murderer. And your heart goes out to him, really, because it's got to be this terrible nightmare. I, I remember during the, when the verdict happened, <clears throat> I couldn't see his, his eyes at the time. I was sitting next to him. And only later, when I saw the, the, cover, the coverage and the camera looking right at him, you could see his eyes welling up. You know, he's getting you know, his eyes are red, and you can tell he's really emotionally moved. And <clears throat> but I remember thinking, what a nightmare it's got to be. Here he is, wrongly convicted, spent 18 years in prison, still had some enough trust in the system that he thought this wouldn't happen again. And here it is, deja vu. So you know, I understand why people feel feel bad for what he's gone through and the fact that he's now, in my opinion, wrongly convicted again and imprisoned. And also for Brendan Dassey, which is an even more moving situation because there was a, there was really no evidence against Brendan other than his confession. Uh, at least with Stephen, you know, I can see about half the people I talk with say, well, I'm not as certain of Stephen Avery's innocent. You know, most of them still think he didn't get a fair trial, but they're just, they're not sure. Maybe 50-50. But almost nobody ever watches, has watched the documentary, thinks Brendan is guilty at all. Yeah. And there was, there was, you know, with, with Stephen at least, there, you know, there was blood in the RAV4, there were the bones and all the, these kinds of things, circumstantial evidence. It was highly suspect, but at least it was something. With Brendan, there was nothing. And, um, you know, to be 16 year old, years old and sitting in prison. So, but the thing that you have to guard against as a defense attorney is prejudging any of your client's guilt. And <clears throat> good attorneys don't do that um, because no matter how somebody may be portrayed in the initial charging documents, they could be completely innocent. And I had a an episode I talk about in the book that was was another sort of formative moment for me after I had been a public defender for about eight years and the caseload pressures were getting so immense that I was taking shortcuts, prejudging people's guilt so that I could determine whether this was going to be an easy case with perhaps a, a plea bargain probation versus somebody who's, you have to go all the way through a trial, like six weeks Stephen Avery trial, because you couldn't take all of those cases. You had to open 15 new felonies a month, whether you closed a single one of them. And so I, I meet this guy in, in intake court when you really have just three or four minutes to, to meet with your client. And I read to the criminal complaint, and it's an open and shut case. He's obviously guilty from the complaint. And he's denying it. I'm absolutely innocent. This is false. And it's like, oh, okay, so this is going to be a lot of work. Here's a guy, you know, this open and shut case. They got tons of guilt. Evidence he's caught red-handed at the scene of a burglary, and he's got this really hard-to-believe story to explain. And so I came back from the uh, from court that day, and I, I was talking to uh, my future wife, a good friend of mine, still in the public defender's office, and I told her the story. And she said, "I'll take that case." And I was like, "Okay, go knock yourself out. Good luck, <laughs> you know." And she got an investigator. She checked up his story, and he was absolutely telling the truth. He was completely innocent, and the case was dismissed. And I thought to myself, "Wow, this is this is really getting to me." You know, what kind of lawyer would I be for that guy if I had judged in the first three minutes that he was guilty and lying to me? Mm. It's a it's an example of how you can't do that, it's first of all not your role as the defense attorney yeah. to judge innocence or guilt, um, but it's dangerous if you do. And so I, my solution was that I, I left the public defender's office and, and went into a private practice where I could control the volume of cases. And, and I learned a lot from that episode, though. And sadly, that happens all over the country thousands of times a day with overworked, stressed out defenders who who make those prejudgments. And uh, so, but that was a, a big lesson for me. Yeah, amazing. Well, I, I appreciate that because I think that it humanizes the, the real challenges that are faced in the legal system. And I think you touch on it in, in the book, Illusions of Justice, um, which, you know, you gave a, a talk at, at Google, I believe, and I was mm -hmm. watching some of it um, early this morning. And, 
and really exceptional. So maybe just unpack a little bit about, about the book itself and, and uh, why sure. you decided to write it. Well, the book, um, you know, I, I've been blessed with a career that has had fascinating cases. And, you know, when I, when I tell people some of the stories about these cases, they're like, you got to write a book. I mean, they've been saying this for years. This is incredible. And, and so I really, I had always planned to write a book and I figured oh, I'll do it when I retire in five years or whatever, it might be 10 years, who knows. But then when Making a Murderer came out and there was so much interest, I, I decided this was a good opportunity to do that. And so I wanted to try and and do in my book, it's, you know, part of it does discuss the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey cases, but also I wanted to talk about other cases I've had in my career where some of the similar flaws, the same flaws that people saw in making a murder were, you know, repeated over and over and over. And to use real cases and examples from my career. I also wanted to, people, you know, we're very intrigued about the whole idea of being a criminal defense attorney and, and what's it like and why did you do it? And, and so, I, you know, part of the book was kind of a, a making of a criminal defense attorney hmm. where I wanted to be able to, to explain what it's like and why I do it and why so many other people do it. And then it's an honorable profession and it's a critical yeah. uh, part of our justice system that people devalue. So, what I wanted people to understand is is that what you see happen in the making a murderer is not unique, mm. sadly. It happens way too often, not in every case. Not in every case are police um, conflicted by um, you know, bias or, or personal interest. Uh, not every police officer is corrupt, thankfully, but en- enough of them are that it's there's a lot of misjustice, uh, injustice that happens in the courtrooms. And I think that's the people who were drawn to this because of a of, you know, perception of a grave injustice. Um, so I wanted to be able to explain, um, sort of pull the, the curtains back from the, what I call the illusion of justice that, that's presented, where people think that real justice happens in the courtroom and that it's very rare when it doesn't. Um, look, these guys have defense attorneys by their side, when in reality, sometimes they're nothing more than a warm body. I mean, there's a case from, I think it's Texas, where uh, a, you know, the quality of defense attorneys you know, varies, as you can see, even from making a murderer. And in a, a death penalty case, the defense attorney is asleep during part of the trial. And the Court of Appeals, they, they're, the de- on appeal, they were able to prove this with witnesses. And, and the initial r- rulings were, well, yeah, he was asleep during part of the trial, but it wasn't an important part of the trial. So it didn't matter. <laughs> um, we're not going to reverse because of that. Now, come on. You know, what kind of illusion of justice is that to have um, bad lawyering or, you know, corrupt police or prosecutors are withholding or destroying evidence. I mean, could you, could you imagine being in therapy with your, with your psychologist and never sleep? Yeah. And it's like, well, it's not an important part of your therapy. It's okay. <laughs> right. right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. And, and then, and so what I wanted to try and explain to people in the book is, is how these things happen, mm. how they've been happening for a long time. And, and then I, I don't want to just end it all on a bummer. And, you know, because there are some things that can be done, if we all take ownership of our justice system to improve the problems, it, they're not all easy. You know, this, this system has been sliding, sliding for decades. The defense function has been, you know, denigrated to the point where there's no longer any kind of balance on the scales. The prosecutors and law enforcement get 10 times the resources that defense do. And so it's when you have an adversary system, which is what America and England and the common law has, the idea is if you have two relatively equal, balanced sides uh, presenting as advocates their view of the facts and the truth, that the jury or the judge will be able to discern what's true. Mm -hmm. But when the scales are tipped and um, one side is completely outgunned, that adversary system fails too often. So, but there are some things that, that can be done to improve that, and I talk about some of them in the, the book. Some of them are simple, some of them will take longer. But um, you know, the, one of the things that I've been most 
encouraged by after Making a Murder came out is the interest that the public has in injustice and in correcting justice, injustices um, all over the world. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful that you know, I'm trying to do everything I can in speaking and meeting with people, try and encourage a continued reform effort. So, yeah, I think it also it also plays a big part in in sort of like humanizing lawyers, specifically criminal defense lawyers, which, like you said, predominantly have been seen as as uh, I, think, I think your words were lower on the totem pole, <laughs> you know, and so. Uh, it don't, not only rehumanizes, but I think it, it's interesting because it sounds like it tells a little bit of your story and, you know, being a husband during all this and being a father during all this. And 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 I, I think my final question is, I know we have to wrap up because we're, we're pretty much out of time. My final question is, is how has this shaped you as a husband and as a father and, and shaped some of your behaviors of, of how you showed up in, in your life? Sure. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that was most remarkable from all the global publicity and, um, you know, people stopping me on the street and calling me by name. And, you know, that, that was, that was awkward, very awkward at first, because I felt like oh, I'm not deserving of this. I mean, there's thousands of other good lawyers, you know, and suddenly I'm, I'm the hero. But then I realized that I could try and be a, a voice for them and, and try and broaden the, the understanding of what criminal defense attorneys do and how we do it. And, you know, how it affects our lives and, and how we try and have some work-life balance. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things, I think, about this kind of a trial, and, and you face this whenever you have a lengthy trial, is I knew it was going to be six weeks of trial where I had to move away from my family, from my wife and my children. Um, this was going to be a case, unlike many, where my wife is a co-counsel with me during the trial, this was not going to be one where we could do that because somebody had to be with our children. And so, and then there's all the time, you know, in months and months and months in preparation of that, where I'd be working late every night and on the weekends. So it was, it was difficult to, to not have that kind of family support. I tried to balance it as best I could by every weekend during the trial, I would leave Friday night after court, go drive home two hours, um, go to the, the kids like soccer, indoor, indoor soccer games or basketball games, whatever was going on. And then I would turn around and leave by, you know, by Saturday afternoon. So I'd have tw- at least 24 hours of normalcy. <laughs> um, and that kind of helped me balance the, the stress and the challenges in the case. But, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's always a challenge because you, your children grow up so fast. And when you're gone for six weeks or six months absorbed in your own case, you can miss too much of what, what happens in their lives. And I remember one, one quick last story. I remember when my children were a bit younger, my wife was uh, at that time in a different private practice and she was trying a case and she was gone a lot. And I was doing all the child rearing and child caring activities. And so she's getting ready to leave for, for trial that day and, you know, kisses our son goodbye. My son was the older and says, you know, I love you, Stephen. And his response was, I love daddy. <laughs> and, you know, for a mother going off to work, and this trial is going to be a week or two long. She's like, ooh, that right hurts. Ooh, that hurts. And, but it was, it was just kind of a lesson to me later that, uh, you know, you can't just, you know, miss your children's lives for two weeks or six weeks and think, okay, I'm just going to come back in. And, you know, for them, that's a long period of time. And yeah. so for, for any, husbands and fathers out there who have whatever their career might be, whether it's law or something else, they may travel a lot. Uh, I really encourage them to, to not lose sight of the fact of, of the, the short time that they have with, as their children are growing, to try to become engaged with them, stay engaged with them. It, it helps now with Skype and FaceTime. Yeah. And you can, even if you're in, you know, um, Saudi Arabia or something, you can still have some kind of communication with them. But, you know, try and keep perspective on what's really important in, in your life. And to me, it's always been family. And that's more important than, than the work, the time you spend on your work. As, as passionate as I still am about my career, it's, it really comes down to your family life as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, you know, I just want to thank you. This has been a really really eye-opening 
uh, interview in a, in a lot of ways. And so uh, I hope the listeners have found value in this. So thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And so for, for everybody else that's out there listening, definitely go and check out the book Illusions of Justice. Uh, and it's, it sounds like an incredible read. I'm going to go pick it up myself because I mean, now I'm really interested about some of these other cases because they, they fascinate me. Uh, and uh, don't forget to subscribe, share the podcast, and share it with somebody that you think would want to listen to it. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, we're on YouTube now. Uh, so you can head on to any of those platforms and check us out. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.